So you've been a bit stifled lately, huh? Restricted on who you can see and where you can visit. What if I told you that Georgia, a student in Greater Manchester, has spent those long lockdown days meeting new friends in cocktail bars, snoozing on sun-drenched beaches, hugging strangers and living it up at raves. All from her student flat. Welcome to the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. This is the Manchester Weekly from The Mill. I'm Daryl Morris, broadcaster, a journalist and host for this brand new podcast. Each week we're going to take you into the heart of the stories that matter in the place you love. We'll get you fully briefed with the latest news, we'll point you in the direction of events that you need to know about and we'll take a deep dive into the fascinating stories and intriguing people that make the heart of this city beat. Alongside me is Yoshi Herman, creator and editor of The Mill, Greater Manchester's new quality newspaper delivered by email. Yoshi, hi. Hey, Dal. It's good to be on. So glad we're doing this. We've been talking about it for months now, so very exciting to get going. Me too. I'm looking forward to diving in. Um, Okay, we've got a cracking story coming up about virtual reality in a moment. First, let's get to the briefing. and Let's dive in and start with a story that might shape more stories to come, Yoshi, because Manchester Council has a new leader. Who's this? Yeah, that's right. So for 25 years, Sir Richard Lees has been the sort of dominant figure in this city, leading the council. Um, But... Starting in December, Bev Craig, who's 36, who grew up in Belfast, who's been a councillor in the city since 2011, uh, she is going to be the new leader of the council. And it's a big shift for the city because, you know, Sir Richard Leeds has been in that job for so long. He's been incredibly influential. Bev Craig is a very different type of politician. Um, She will be more focused on social justice issues. She will be more focused on issues like affordable housing she will probably take a slightly different approach to the way in which the city regenerates and redevelops. So it's a a very significant moment, I think. And she will have a big influence, right, on some of those key issues in the city. What what are the sort of headline points, Yoshi, on what she believes? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. She knows this city really, really well. Um, she studied um, class politics and modern history at the University of Manchester. She graduated in two thousand and seven, so she's been here a long time. I think if you look at her tweets and if you look at the things she said in the council chamber, it's clear that the fact that she grew up in social housing has influenced her politics a lot. She talks a lot about the importance of a good council home and um, of, of the local council providing good housing for its people. I think whereas Sir Richard Lees was kind of quite focused on criticising elements of the of the sort of Corbynite left... Bev Craig will be different. She will probably be more accommodating to the left. She will probably listen more to groups that say affordable housing needs to be a bigger part of what um, what gets built. And she will bring a, a younger flavour um, from a much younger generation of the Labour Party. OK, interesting. Uh, by chance, you spoke to the outgoing leader, Richard Lees. Was it literally on the day of his departure you had an interview set up with him? That went ahead. He honoured that, right? How did that go? Yeah, so for months we'd been planning to speak to Sir Richard and it just so happened that he um, announced his resignation the night before. So I was expecting him to cancel our interview um, in his office, but actually he, his his team got in touch that morning and said he wants to go ahead with it. He doesn't want to cancel the engagement. So we did our first sort of long interview with Sir Richard um, that day and he was kind of getting messages from all his political allies over the years in Westminster and in Manchester and across the country. And 
that was our first interview for this piece. We're doing another one in November and we're going to publish a, a, a good long form profile about him in December on the mill. OK, more about Bev Craig, I'm sure, as time goes on. Also, you'll probably have followed the developments in Afghanistan these last couple of months. A human crisis unfolding through the news. Now that story has arrived here in Greater Manchester. And Yoshi, there are some really important conversations happening, aren't there, about the placing of asylum seekers? Yeah, so for years there's been this debate about how asylum seekers should be dispersed, which sounds like a bit of a sort of ugly technical word, but that's, a, that, that's how the government refers to it. The dispersal of asylum seekers has been seen as unfair for quite a while, and that reason for that is they often end up being given housing in the poorest areas of the country. So there are lots of areas of the country that don't get allocated any asylum seekers. They tend to be wealthy southern constituencies, often controlled by the, the Conservative Party. And places like Rochdale, for example, or Bolton, for example, end up with a lot of asylum seekers. And that's prompted a debate this weekend in in Rochdale. It's prompted some local figures to say, you know, why are more and more asylum seekers being allocated to us when we don't have extra resources for schools, extra resources for health? So that debate is definitely back. And Andy Burnham's also saying, you know, the system needs to be reformed. Interesting. And the mill Stanley Cole also spoke to an Afghan asylum seeker this week, right, Yoshi? What did what did we learn? Yeah. So we wanted to also find out what is it like to be an Afghan asylum seeker in this city? So we spoke to someone who's been here for more than 20 years, a man called Zia. He runs a furniture firm in Cheatham Hill. Um, Danny spoke to him and I think, first of all, she learned how perilous his journey was and how strange it is to arrive in a place that's so different and you know fr- fr- from where you grew up. I think she also learned that asylum seekers who come from Afghanistan can build a really good life here. They can build a successful life and employ people and really add to local society and add to the local economy. And I think when we talk about the issue of where asylum seekers are accommodated and the sort of the numbers and the very stark differences between areas, we also need to bear in mind that there are like genuine human stories behind each of those numbers. And I think that's what Danny's piece really brought home. And hey, look, we were never going to get very far without having to mention the C word in the briefing. Um, It's still with us. And the focus is now on Trafford so far as coronavirus and COVID is concerned, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's strange because for most of this pandemic, Trafford, which is a little bit more affluent than some of the other areas of Greater Manchester, hasn't had super high rates. But in the past couple of weeks, Trafford has had a soaring COVID case rate, and it's actually pushing the whole of Greater Manchester's rate up. So Greater Manchester's COVID case rate is up by more than 20% in the past week. But rates in Trafford are, for example, about four times higher than they are in Manchester itself. Um, And that's mostly being driven by cases in schools. Um, So that's where all the local concern is there. And... If the solution to that problem is vaccines, then that bit of the story takes us to Oldham, right? Yeah, that's right. There's been concern among some school leaders that the rates of uptake of vaccination among young people in in schools has been pretty low. And this week, um, you know, the the leader of a school in in Oldham highlighted that when when they spoke to The Times, basically saying, don't expect vaccine uptake to get any higher than it already has been. It's been disappointing. There are mixed messages to parents. Um, We're not seeing the kind of run towards the vaccines that we saw in in the over 70s or in the over 60s. And what's the story generally then across Greater Manchester, Yoshi? What, we, what picture are we looking at? I think the picture at the moment is that cases are starting to rise again. I and mean, we've had a, you know, about a month and a half now where 
the situation has been pretty stable. But I think what's important to bear in mind or the thing that we should be really focusing on is the hospital situation because that's always the ultimate, the, the thing that really matters. Currently, there are just over 40 people who are COVID-19 positive and who are in critical care in, in Greater Manchester's hospitals. That's a little bit up from the week before. That's not a super concerning number, given that in February it was peaking at about 170. But that is the number we're, we're looking at weekly on this podcast, I think, because I think as soon as cases start turning into those kind of critical care numbers in hospitals, that's when you need to be worried. Okay, I feel like all of those stories we will come back to uh, at some point down the line, for sure. Yoshi, for now, thank you. Now, if you step through the door of 51 Church Street next to Affleck's Palace, right in the heart of Manchester's northern quarter, you'll find people crouched to the floor, gun in hand, fending off bullets from mysterious armoured figures. Or you might find a family encouraging each other to walk the plank of a ship, trying to hold their balance above a sheer drop into some freezing water. Or you could find a Star Wars fanatic tinkering with the screwdriver at the underbelly of the Millennium Falcon. People almost literally in different worlds. 51 Church Street is home to Virtual Hideout, which is one of Manchester's first virtual reality experiences. Once you slip on that headset, for some people, virtual reality isn't just a game, but a state of being. The Mills' Jack Dulhanty met Georgia, who was a student in Greater Manchester, who herself fell into the world of virtual reality. She came face to face with its rewards and its risks. Jack, hi. Hello, you're all right. Very well. I'm so intrigued by this story. Wow. It is so fascinating. How did you meet Georgia? Um, it was really by chance. I was My girlfriend actually studied on the same course as Georgia did at the same university, so we were just talking about university life type things, and she just mentioned in passing that someone on a course wasn't turning up to lectures anymore, and I was like, oh, that's weird, you know why? And she was just like, yeah, she's addicted to VR. And I was just like, oh, go back, let's start again. And then... I basically got in touch with her around, it would have been in May, May, April-ish. And for a while she didn't want to talk to me, I presume because she would have been sort of in the depths of this dependency or addiction. She was just really reticent to chat. And then got in touch with her a few more times, kind of probed it, and then we finally met around September for our first interview. And so she was addicted to virtual reality. Clearly it was affecting almost all elements of her life. Yeah. How did she fall into virtual reality in the first place? She was always someone who had been interested in technology. Uh, she had developed a sort of interest in games, actually to get on better with flatmates who were game design students at uni. And she just came across a virtual reality headset one day, tried it on, didn't really think much of it, thought it was cool. I think around 12 months or so, or getting on that must have gone by before she decided to finally buy one herself. And then another few months would have gone by before she discovered VR chat, which was really the the portal for her. That's what hooked her entirely. And it was during the third lockdown, by which point her social interaction had been greatly restricted as it was for everyone. And it was really that that got, got her hooked, yeah. Wow, okay. So she's at home like the rest of us, isolated like the rest of us, slips on a headset and enters into an entirely different world. What did her sort of daily routine become? I think by her own averages, she reported spending about 10 to 15 hours a day uh, with a VR headset on. Wow. Peaking at 35 hours in one session, and then there was a couple of 20 to 25 hour sessions sprinkled in. 
So she was living in a virtual reality world. Like, doing what? Well, that's the interesting thing. So VR chat is essentially a kind of immersive social media. So it's not necessarily a game. So she wasn't so much... It wasn't like a, a case of pathological gaming. She was essentially replacing her mode of socialization with it. So where normally you might go out to a bar, she'd put on a VR headset, go to a virtual bar. Same thing with a cinema, same thing with a nightclub, same thing with a rave. All at the same time, she was just sat on a bed, stood in a room, talking into empty space. Wow. Even sleeping, right? She would sleep with it on space. Yeah, it, it reached the point where she slept better. Uh, that's literally, though, VR chat has dedicated sleep worlds. So places that are all very softly lit. You have to be quiet or you'll get kicked out. People can just sleep together, cuddle, or at least they're sort of VR representations in virtual reality or cuddle. And yeah, she found she slept better that way at one point. Wow. I mean, this is not just a game for her this was her world wasn't it for such a long time there are some really striking stats aren't there about how virtual reality as a genre uh, is going to become how big it's going to become and and it's i guess it's fair to say jack that it has the potential to to change the world as we know it yeah definitely i mean price waterhouse coopers are like a big consultancy firm i think they've estimated virtual reality and augmented reality which are fairly similar will add something like 1.5 trillion dollars to the global economy you're looking at the vr headset market alone tripling in the next four years so like at the minute with vr chat there's like two million users if you compare that to to like facebook there's two billion users on facebook if it was ever to reach that point the portion of that population who risk becoming dependent of it just goes through the roof talking like two million people that's like whole sections of society basically becoming dedicated to virtual worlds and that in itself changes the world, really. Mm. People living their life in a different world. Yeah. And you went on the hunt for some academic research, didn't you, into virtual reality addiction. Mm. What did you find? Not much, sadly. <laughs> when you talk about VR in academia, it's very heavily referenced in clinical academia. So, you know, it's, it's used to help people deal with social anxiety or different phobias, whether it's like agoraphobia or or fear of heights, as you were talking about walking planks, people do that to get over those fears. But when it came to virtual reality addiction, it always sort of remained an abstraction. It it was like it was talked about, it was like, could people become addicted to it? But it wasn't like someone is addicted to it. And it would appear the reality is that multiple people are definitely addicted to it. That just goes from what George has told me with people developing parallel dependencies to her during her time when she was addicted. Okay. So clearly there's some, there are some positives and there are some destructive elements to virtual reality. And as I read George's story that you wrote, Jack, I kind of went from being intrigued to a bit terrified, to kind of excited, to intrigued again, back to terrified, as well as wondering, how can I invest in this industry that's clearly going to be huge? <laughs> how did it make you feel? Um, a similar similar trajectory. I mean, at first I was definitely intrigued. It, it was just an interesting idea, the thought of someone spending that much time, as much time as it was being alluded to to me. I think what was actually interesting was by the time I was done speaking to Georgia, I was completely unsurprised by everything that I was hearing like I was completely just like yes this makes perfect sense and I think that in a way is testament to how easy it is to find this stuff normal very quickly and how immersive it is for a user especially a user but even just someone talking to a user about it like by the time she was telling me that like she was spending huge amounts of time at raves or that 
you had to show your ID to get into a virtual reality club, stuff like that. I was like, yeah, that makes sense because it's virtual reality and this is how we do it in virtual reality now. And then like, I'd come out of it, talk to like Yoshi or someone else in the office and they'd literally be like looking at me slack, John, I'd remember like, ah, this is quite odd, isn't it? But yeah, you do become used to it very quickly. So what situation does Georgia find herself in now? Thankfully now she has weaned herself off. It had, you know, it it was kind of like a confluence of events. Like the friends she was spending the majority of her time with, they kind of realised that they needed to, you know, nip it in the bud. Uh, Her VR headset's cable broke, so she couldn't go on VR anyway. That essentially broke her dependency. She went a bit cold turkey. Now she spends like an hour at most, she says, a week, an hour or two a week, and she mostly uses it for exercise. So Mm. much better situation than she was in. So fascinating. Jack, thank you. Okay, Yoshi, take us into the mill. What's happening in the newsroom this week? Yeah, it's been a really exciting week um, for us. Harry Shookman, who is a journalist who used to work for The Times, he has joined us um, part-time to help out with some editing and some reporting. And so he's just getting going. Um, Danny is working on a really interesting story about Hong Kong people who are arriving in Trafford in particular and across Greater Manchester. But there's a big influx of people from Hong Kong at the moment because of the government's um, visa rules that have allowed people who live in Hong Kong to come here. And they are arriving here, getting to know each other, trying to work out where to live. Um, And Danny's got a really fascinating story on that. And this weekend, actually, we've got a piece about Tony Wilson. There's a new book out by the um, former NME writer Paul Morley. Um, It's a five or six hundred page book, um, which is incredibly in-depth. It's all about, you know, Tony Wilson in the 70s and the 80s. It takes it right from the beginning of his life. So I've been reading that book for the past month or so. I'm going to write a a piece this weekend about that um, and be interested to see sort of how that goes down. Wow. Okay. So fascinating. And you can subscribe to that, manchestermill.co.uk. Now, every week on the Manchester Weekly from the Mill, we're going to nod you in the direction of some events that you need to know about. Yoshi, what's going on? Yeah, I think the first one to recommend is the Manchester Literature Festival, which started last week. Um, Some really fascinating talks from authors, some of whom are from Manchester, some of whom are just in the city to promote their, their work. Um, We thought there's a really good one um, coming up this weekend um, in which the biographer Rachel Holmes um, talks about Sylvia Pankhurst. I think that that could be a really interesting talk. Um, And I think if people miss these, and because a lot of them have been sold out, they will be able to watch them online um, later on. Yes, the digital version starts in November, I think, from November the 1st. So you can stream them after that, which is quite a handy idea. Um, Also at home, speaking of Black History Month, there is um, a, a mural at home that's worth seeing, right? Yeah, Home have got um, a commission from Vanessa Scott, um, the artist. She's created a mural for Black History Month. Um, it's celebrating uh, the impact of people of colour in the UK. It takes the form of a subverted Union Jack, and that's a really interesting piece that I think a lot of people will want to go and see. Also, I'm very excited about the uh, Van Gogh, Van Gogh uh, a live event. You, you might, if you walk past Media City, you might hear the the knock, knock, knock of them building it at the moment. I visited the London leg uh, of its UK tour that kicks off here in Media City next week, and it's kind of a, a fully immersive uh, exhibition. It's got a full scale model of a couple of his works, and on the theme of virtual reality, there is a VR tour, and I can kind of see why Georgia, who we were talking about earlier on got so hooked into virtual reality and became addicted because once you put on that headset 
mindset and, and you walk in Van Gogh's shoes as it lets you do through some of the settings of his work. It's really consuming and incredibly exciting. I, had to, I sort of had to prize the thing off in the end. That was definitely the highlight of it. Uh, I wouldn't expect anything hugely groundbreaking. It's basically his Wikipedia printed on a wall, the rest <laughs> of it. Uh, but really worth a visit if you're a fan. Uh, and that's at Media City starting next week. Okay, Jack, thank you. Thanks a lot. Yoshi, thanks a lot. See you next week. We would love it if you could hit like, follow or subscribe on this podcast and be the first to hear about brand new episodes as they land every week. And there is plenty more where this came from in the Mill newsletter. News, events, deep dives into these fascinating stories and interesting people. You can get that in your inbox by subscribing at manchestermill.co.uk. 